Ezra 3. Uh, if you haven't got a Bible, go and grab one from the back. Uh, there is no shame in looking up the table of contents for Ezra. It is a small book. If you've hit Psalms, go back towards Genesis and you'll find it there. Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josedach, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shatiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorised by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shatiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work. They appointed Levites twenty years old and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With the praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads, who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Well, good morning, folks. Uh, If you're in youth church, now's your time to head off. If you're new here, uh, youth church is for children year five to year eight. My name's Rob, and yes, we're going to have a look at Ezra 3. Can you remember a time that you were really excited about getting something, but when you actually got it, it wasn't all that exciting? I remember back in 94, my dad bought a brand new Pajero, and he was a tight farmer, and he never bought new cars, but 
This one was his first brand new car. It was the most he'd ever spent on a car. It was flaming red, a bit like the one in the picture. He bought it from a dealer in Wollongong. And the day after he bought it, he headed home from Wollongong towards the Riverina. And as he was driving up Macquarie Pass, the car started missing and getting slower and slower. And he ended up being able to... The fastest he could go was 30 kilometres an hour. There was a line of cars all behind him, because if you know Macquarie Pass, you can't get around people. Even the trucks wanted to get around him. By the time he got to Mittagong Mitsubishi dealer, he was humiliated and fuming. Now, it took weeks to work out the problem. It ended up being a simple kink in a fuel line, and so it was starving for fuel. A simple problem but a giant reminder that cars are temporary. Now speaking of temporariness uh, in the world our bodies are also temporary. I'm certainly not as agile as I was when I was 20 years old. My two boys love playing touch against me because they can step around me pretty easy. I try to take off and my knee clicks and the hammy twingles and and I can't run like I used to. Can any of you relate to that? Well, why I'm telling you about this is because we're going to be reminded today that everything in this world is temporary. We're going to see from Ezra, we're going to wrestle with the topic, the temporary temple points to a permanent home in Christ. And we're going to do this by looking through four points. We're going to set the scene of Ezra, because if you're like me, it's not a book you've probably read often. The second point we're going to look at is the temporary sacrifices and the temporary temple. The third point is the temporary party they have after they lay the foundation of the temple. And then we're going to finish with number four, the permanency of Jesus. Now if you were here three weeks ago, you'll notice that this talk builds on the talk we did from Exodus 25 about the tabernacle. Let's, let's how about we pray and we'll ask God to help us to be open to this word. Father, thank you uh, for your word and Lord, uh, as I prepared for this talk, I pray that you'd help my friends here and I to be reminded that everything here is temporary and that we need to live for the permanent relationship we can have with you through Jesus. Please help us to grab that afresh this morning. Amen. Right out, so point one, let's set the scene. The book of Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're like one continuous story. And this story is about God's people, the Jews, returning to Jerusalem from Babylon and where they're free now to rebuild the temple and also Jerusalem. Now Ezra, he's a priest and he's the one who writes this book about this Jewish People returning. And God's powerful hand is behind this return as promised to the Jewish people in many places in the Old Testament. And one of them was in Jeremiah 29. If you're taking notes, it's chapter 29, verse 10. And this is what it says. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And the bringing back is to Jerusalem. 
And that's Jeremiah saying that well before they were even exiled into Babylon. So God, faithful to his promises, he moves the heart of King Cyrus of Persia to release the Jews from Babylon. And after their 70 years there, Cyrus sends them with his resources back to build God's temple back in Jerusalem. Now, do you think Cyrus, who's not necessarily a believer in God, would have sent them back with his resources at his own accord? No way. This is God's behind it all. And he's like God directed Nebuchadnezzar to, to punish the Jews and take them to Babylon. Here's God's mighty hand working through a foreign king to bring them back to Jerusalem through Cyrus. Now the time in history, it's about 500 BC. Uh, Tim mentioned Moses was about 1500 BC, so we're a thousand years later. And the Jews, they make this amazing journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem. It's a little like us walking from here in Wagga all the way to the other side of Adelaide to have a fish at Port Lincoln or something. It's a long way. Now the Jews are motivated people. They return to a pile of rubble. But as we find today, they'll set about rebuilding. Now I wonder whether the motivation and resilience of this uh, culture, the Jews, might have something to do. Uh, today, the American population is made up by 2% of Jews, yet they comprise 40% of America's billionaires. So they're a pretty tenacious, motivated race of people. Now, if you've got your Bibles there, we'll just have a look at Ezra chapter 2. And we'll look at the last two verses, 68 to 69. This is where the people, they make offerings towards the rebuilding of God's house. Read with me verse 68 of chapter 2. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings towards the building of the house of God on its site. According to their ability... They gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 miners of silver and 100 priestly garments. Now this is a huge amount of resources. Just the gold itself uh, would be worth around over $10 million in, in today's money. And notice also that the people, they settled into their own houses first, but they... But they were reminded by the prophets, especially Haggai, and challenged to get their priorities right and build God's house, the temple. And what's so important about the temple uh, to the Jewish people here? Well, the whole fabric of the Jewish society was built around the tabernacle, which we learnt about a few weeks ago, and now the temple. This was God's dwelling place with his people. It's a little like uh, when I was growing up, uh, my nana lived in 67 Aldridge Avenue, Coromel in Wollongong. Now, this is where nana lived. It was where I could go to be with my nana. The house, 67 Aldridge, it was made significant because that's where my nana was. And so too with the temple. 
it's made significant because that's kind of like where the people went to be with God. I want you to hang on to that thought because that, that'll be really important as we move towards the end of this today's talk. So that's setting the scene a little bit for Ezra and the context. Now we're going to point two. Let's have a look at the temporary sacrifices and the temporary temple. Now notice the first six verses that Jeff read in Ezra 3. It talks about rebuilding of the altar and associated sacrifices. We'll have another look at that, verses 1 to 6. And as we read, take notice just how many sacrifices there are. So when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Josedach, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, what a cool name, eh? Oh, I should have named Zach Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, I was. <laughs> Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of God, the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is, what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 3. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the temple, the Lord's temple, had not yet been laid. So the priests and the governor worked together to build the altar to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. Now, this is very significant time for the Jews because, remember, for 70 years they've just been in Babylon where they haven't been, they've been restricted in their worship of God. Now, to help us understand or put ourselves in the Israelites' shoes, I'm going to give you a hypothetical from today. Now, some of you may uh, follow or see Daniel Andrews, he's the the Premier of Victoria is not particularly positive towards Christians. Uh, you might remember last month he got brought into the Thornburg debacle, the Essendon CEO who chose to stand down. Um, and Daniel condemned, Daniel Andrews condemned Thorburn's church's stance on homosexuality and abortion, remember? And he said some of his words were along the lines that it's absolutely appalling what Thorburn would believe along with his church. Now, what Thorburn's, his personal views in church has got to do with his ability to lead Essendon Football Club, it just does my head in. It seems ridiculous. But let's say the ridiculous flourishes and Daniel Andrews, he orders all Christians to be locked up in the dry area of Western Victoria. So all of us here, we're carted off for 70 years to live out in the West under restricted conditions. And the Mexicans move up and they destroy Wagga and flatten it. 70 years later, 
there's new leaders in Victoria and we're brought back to Wagga. Now, how many of us would come back? I know I'd be 120, so I don't think I'd make it. But what would we find here in Wagga? Like, remember this place got flattened. So that's what it was like for the Jews coming back home. They did come home and it was significant for them because now they were free to worship their Lord. And did you notice in Ezra 3 how many sacrifices they were now free to do? The feasts and the offerings, it would have been nearly, or it was, a full-time occupation for priests like Ezra. Uh, Just remember, some of them were Feast of Tabernacles, the morning and evening sacrifices, new moon sacrifices, sacrifices for appointed feasts and free will offerings. So there's a lot of them. And also remember uh, Tim's talk a few weeks ago talking about the tabernacle, the amount of blood and bone and skin and hair around the temple, the stink, the offence of it all. Uh, it's like... A very powerful picture of what sin is, the offensiveness of sin to God. It would have been very in your face back then. So, these feasts, offerings and sacrifices, it was a huge commitment. And you wonder, them being so complex and laid out, intricate, in your face system, was it ever God's permanent system? Is this God's completed method for his people to do away with sin and connect with him? Well, no. Not only were these ended by Jesus, which we'll talk about in a little while, the Old Testament clearly states that these were only ever an outward symbol of an inward love that God wanted people to have for him. If you take a notes, 1 Samuel 15.22 Does the Lord delight in bird offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Or another one, Hosea 6.6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. So God is after a heart that desires to please him. And sacrifices don't mend the sinful human heart. And we'll find out shortly why. Now, another thing, an important thing we can learn from all these prescribed offerings and sacrifices done in the temple is that God's character is one of precision. He's a very precise God. And some of you would have talked about this in Bible study this week. Uh, again, I like uh, Tim said a few weeks ago, you know, when God ordered the construction of the tabernacle, he didn't say, you know, go and grab a bit of baling twine from the back paddock off the junk heap. But he's very precise in how things were to be built and conducted. And it reminds me, like, do you realise that God is so precise that he can build a human body that lasts forever? Like, do you believe that? Uh, like, Adam and Eve, before sin, do you know, God built them to live forever. Flesh that's so precisely constructed with cells perfectly renewing that it would never die. That's, wow. 
Like today, clever mechanical engineers who design and build cars, they need to be precise. Uh, like imagine a Pajero piston, for example, going up and down in a block for 400,000 Ks. Metal against metal, you need precision, don't you, for that, that piston to last. And, but even this level of engineering, it has tolerances, a margin for error. Yes, very small tolerances, but we humans, we cannot make things perfect. But with God, there are no tolerances. He can and does make things perfect. So that we can have confidence in him, can't we? Like if he says he's going to make a place for us where we'll live forever in heaven, that a God of precision, he can do that. I wouldn't be able to, but God, he can do that. But let's move on. So the second part of point two, we've looked at. We've already looked at the temporary sacrifices from Ezra. Now we're going to look at the temporary temple. Read with me Ezra three, and we'll go from verse seven to nine. Then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters. They gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorised by Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 8, In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jezadak, and the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, and all who returned from captivity to Jerusalem, they began the work. They appointed Levites, 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, they joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. So, after 70 years, they're about to rebuild Solomon's temple. And because, remember... What they've got in front of them is a pile of rubble. Now it's time to clear the mess and lay the new foundations. And it's a huge undertaking. Uh, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of resources in today's dollars and thousands of people involved. It's a little bit like, it's hard to imagine, but imagine the whole population of Wagga being focused on one building project. A researcher who got right into this and studied the temple structure, Lambert Dolphin, he wrote an article called The Treasures of the House of the Lord. Now, in his studies, he stated Solomon's temple was worth over $5 billion. That's the first temple in Jerusalem. And that included the furnishings and precious metal stores. Now, this current temple we're looking at in Ezra is the second temple. It was built by the exiles here. It was much less valuable, but still a palatial temple. So surely, with so much effort going into such a structure, would you think that the temple is going to be permanent? Well, check out this table. Here we got the three temples that occurred in Jerusalem. Now let these figures sink into your head around temporary versus permanent. The first temple, Solomon's, built around 975 BC. It took them six years to build 
and 180,000 laborers. And it was, yeah, worth, as we said, over $5 billion. Now, those figures in that fourth column there, uh, there's conjecture among scholars on the, what the actual figures are, but they do agree they are massive figures. Solomon's temple, notice in the last column, it lasted 389 years before it was destroyed by fire by Nebuchadnezzar. And if you want to read about that, that's 2 Chronicles 36. Then the second row there is Zerubbabel's temple, which took the exiles 50 years to build. The resources for this temple, only a fraction of the amount of Solomon's temple at 0.9 of a billion, but that's still $900 million. Now, those of you who have driven to Tumut, you know, the Vizzy Mill, as you come out Adelong over the hills, you look left there, covers acres and acres. That mill cost $900 million to build, similar value to this Zerubbabel's temple. Now, Zerubbabel's temple, it never got demolished, but Herod with the third row there, the third temple, he carried out major refurbishments in 19 BC, which included raising it to 14 storeys high. And he injected something in the order of $2 billion in today's money into that structure. It was palatial, not as big as Solomon's, but it was an awesome structure. It covered 36 acres and it dominated the Jerusalem landscape. Uh, there's a few photos coming up in the slides of a model that was constructed by a pensioner, Alec Gerard. Uh, this is an amazing structure, it's, but it only stood for 89 years uh, before it was flattened by the Romans in 70 AD. So the Jerusalem temples, they're a little bit like the old red brick Wagga Hospital. They weren't permanent, were they? They were temporary gone, flattened. While they were palatial structures, they were not permanent. 89 years, it really isn't that long. I work at Wagga Council in the Asset Management Department. We expect at least 100 years out of a sewer pipe. So this temple didn't even last that long. <laughs> now, just another little sidestep here that's something else we can learn about God's character in all this is that God is extravagantly, extravagantly wealthy. What? Like, we can drive around Wagga and drive, especially up in the higher streets and the hills, and go, well, there's some pretty nice houses in Wagga, isn't there? And you look at them and think, you know, some of them there's only two people living in that massive structure. It's a bit extravagant, isn't it? But for God, extravagance is a good and right thing. Why? Because he's the creator. He owns everything. He can make everything. So God is, he's wealthy, he just is. Because he owns the planet, he can say, King Cyrus, we're going to use your resources to build my temple in Jerusalem. So I used to feel a little bit sorry when like, I hear about billionaires today saying there is no God and go, oh, poor God. No, no, it's a poor billionaire, isn't it? Because one day he's got to face God and say all his resources, assets that he had, were actually God's anyway. So feel sorry for the person, not God. But anyway, back to uh, Ezra. We're going to go to the third point now, temporary party. 
So, so far we've seen the Israelites, they've built an altar to present their temporary sacrifices and they've started building their temple, which we've learnt is temporary too. And now we're going to look at the third point, the temporary party they have once the foundation's laid. Have a look at Ezra 3, verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols, they took their places to praise God as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave great a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads had seen the former temple. They wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others, they shouted for joy. Verse 13, No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. And the sound was heard far away. So here we are, Zerubbabel's temple. It's built, the people celebrate with a party. Why were they celebrating? Well, remember, the reunion's been made. They're back with their God. They're seeing that the temple is where God is, remember? So it's like as a kid when I visited 67 Aldridge Avenue. Great reunion with my nana. The Jews are back with their God. But... Even amidst this great party, there's something wrong. In verse 12, the older people are crying and weeping. Why? Well, these people, they're old enough to remember the former glory of Solomon's temple. Haggai 2.3 says, it gives us some insight into this. Haggai 2.3, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look now? Does it not seem like to you nothing? So what's happening? That The temple here in Ezra, it's like but a pup compared to Solomon's temple. Solomon's but Remember, Solomon's still, temple is still temporary. It's gone. And same with Ezra's temple here. While it lasts a long time, it still got flattened. Further, while the temple represented God's presence with his people, it was never God's ideal way. Was there a temple in the Garden of Eden? Uh, no. In Stephen's amazing speech in Acts chapter 8, uh, to, and he says to his accusers who end up stoning him, like Stephen gives a great summary right up to Solomon from the Bible, and he says in verse 48 of Acts 7, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So it's a bit like what Stephen's getting at here is that God is far too big to fit in a man-made house. How can the creator, big C, squeeze into the created, little c? 
It's a bit like um, Belinda, my wife, she used to make beaded necklaces. Imagine how foolish it would be for her to make a necklace and say, oh, I want to now live inside this necklace. The creator is way too big for the created. And thus the temple, God only ever brought it in as a temporary, a symbol of God's presence with the Jews. There was a better permanent way coming for God to be reunited with his people and get over this the brokenness that sin has caused. And that leads us beautifully into our last point, our fourth point, the permanency of Jesus. Now there's uh, several interesting connections in Ezra 3 uh, with Jesus. Verse 2, Zerubbabel, he is Jesus' great-great-grandfather, as is uh, King David, who's mentioned in verse 10 of Ezra 3. And verse 2 also, Jesus is a priest, the great high priest. But even more important than these connections is that Jesus puts an end to the temple institutions that we're learning about here in Ezra 3. And Jesus replaces them with a more permanent arrangement. First, the sacrifices and the priestly system. Uh, Jesus replaced these. And this is, if you've studied the book of Hebrews, it's excellent for painting this picture of Jesus replacing that whole system. But we'll just pick out a couple of verses this morning from Hebrews. The first one is Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 2. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated over endlessly year after year, never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Verse 2, otherwise would would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. And then jump down to verse 8 to 10 of Hebrews 10. First he said, Sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. This important bit, verse 9, he sets aside the first to establish the second and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he, God, here, he sets aside the first and he's talking about the first, the old covenant. A covenant is agreement between God and people in the Old Testament, where God related through the Mosaic law and the temple and the sacrifices with people. But this covenant is temporary. It has been set aside for the second covenant. This new covenant has been brought in by Jesus. His sacrifice once for all. Two powerful little words, once and for all. If you do something once and it's a perfect sacrifice, and it covers everyone, past, present and future, how often do you have to do it again? Never. So in Ezra's time, he being a priest, he lined up day after day with that gruesome task of slitting animals' throats. 
But these sacrifices were a daily reminder of daily sins to be paid for. Remember, Romans, the wages of sin is death. But today, God said, Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. We are forgiven forever if we hang on to this, if we believe in this, that Jesus' sacrifice was on our behalf. So that's the sacrifices. What about the temple? How does Jesus bring that to an end? Do we need a temple to be God's people today? Do we need a church? Well, what, or a building I'm talking about. When the people in Ezra 3 laid the foundation of the temple, they partied. And in verse 11, they said, He is good, his love to Israel endures forever. But did the Israelites taste God's love forever through the temple? Well, no, the Romans destroyed Herod's temple in AD 70, and that's not forever. So listen to these awesome words in Hebrews 3, 3 to 6. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken of by God in the future. Verse 6, this is the important one, but Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. We are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. So Jesus is greater than Moses. Why? Because he, being God, is the builder of the house. He is the creator with his father. So remember Nana's house. I didn't visit Wollongong to cuddle the house. I visited Nana to cuddle her, the owner of the house. So the Hebrew writer is saying here, all created things, the house, including the temple, the tabernacle, which Moses served in, they're the created things. But now we are the house who served Jesus. So the temple is no longer needed. Do you realise when God created the world, we already mentioned this, that before sin there was no need for a temple in the garden. So God walked with Adam and Eve. I reckon they, because there was no sin, they could have cuddled God. And God, the God of precision, he's going to finish it the same way. Revelation 21, uh, I won't read it now, but put it in your notes. And it paints this beautiful picture of how God is going to finish the world where we can be with God in like the new Garden of Eden with him, present with him, walking with him like Adam and Eve did. He will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more death, mourning or crying. And the important one, Revelation twenty-one twenty-two, I did not see a temple in this new creation because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. So praise God that through Jesus, this is our new permanent future in heaven. It will be a party with no crying. None of us will have to sit in a temple listening to boring sermons. I used to think that as a kid, that heaven wouldn't be that exciting. If it's anything like church, it's too boring. <laughs> but but it will be 
pure bathing in God's glory in a new Garden of Eden, perfect relationships all around. So let's wrap this up. So what's the application for us today? How do we respond to Ezra 3? How do we respond to sacrifices, temple being uh, temporary, but in Christ the new relationship being permanent? Well, if you're a Christian here this morning, I encourage you, continue to worship Jesus. And when I say worship, I mean live for, be guided by, put your energies into pleasing Jesus. Don't be sucked into worshipping the red pajero or the knee or the wealth or the precision of this temporary world. Worship Jesus. He's the one who has promised a permanent home for us to look forward to. But what if you're not yet a Christian here this morning? I encourage you to seek out what it means to worship Jesus. Because if you're worshipping or living for or not living for God and Jesus, it means you're living for something temporary. And you know what? God didn't design you for that. And so you will never be fulfilled. None of us will be fulfilled if we live for, worship anything other than God and, and Jesus. Let me finish with Jesus' wise words from Matthew 6.19, which I think summarises beautifully. Matthew 6.19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and destroy. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Amen.